All right, good morning, church. We are continuing our journey through the Gospel of Matthew, which is a book, a biography of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Now, we have just left a section entitled The Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has come down from the mountain, and immediately he's confronted by the crowds, and there's all these people bringing to him people who are in need of healing and miracles. Now, at this point, however, Matthew, the author of this biography, <clears throat> wants you to have an image in your mind. And the image is very important, but the image is easily lost or neglected. And it's primarily due to the fact uh, of the way, it's based upon the, the way modern people approach reading the Bible. Most of the time when we read the Bible, we do so with a a set of goals. So, for example, sometimes we read the Bible devotionally. And what that means is, is you're going to read a small portion of the Bible to find some sort of daily inspiration to help you in your life. Nothing wrong with that, but it's just a way in which you're approaching the Scripture. Sometimes we approach the Bible with a set of difficult questions. So we're coming to the Bible for it to answer life's biggest questions, like the existential crisis hits, and now we need answers on some, some big stuff. And if we're honest with ourselves, sometimes we, we read the Bible just to find out like what we can get away with. And what I mean by that is, what are the rules? Like, what are the rules? I want to do X, Y, Z. Can I? So let me consult the scriptures. Now, there's nothing wrong with approaching the scriptures in that manner because the Bible is inspirational. It does have answers to life's biggest questions, and it certainly has rules. Jesus has things you should not do and things you can do. However, there is a way of approaching the Bible that is often neglected. And that way of reading the scripture is what we'll call story. Let, letting the Bible be read as if it's a story. The Bible is one big giant story. And in that one giant, big, beautiful story, there's tons, tons, tons and tons of little stories. And all of these little stories are all interacting with each other and engaging with each other. So very early on in the scriptures, there's patterns and motifs and themes that, that are developed. And then later biblical stories look back to those patterns, motifs, and themes, and then they engage with them and they repeat them. Or sometimes they'll repeat them, but make one slight difference. So it's getting you to go, okay, what's going on here? So the bad news is, is that we miss this a lot of times because we're not engaging the scripture as if it was a story. Yes, it's devotional. Yes, it has answers. And yes, it does all these different things. But the Bible is one big story filled with lots of stories. So the bad news is sometimes we miss this. The good news is we have trained our eyes and ears to do this. We just don't do it with the Bible. And most modern people do this with movies, specifically movie franchises. And what franchise, what, what I mean by that is um, they should have only made one or two movies, but they ended up making 15. Um, because what happens is there's a themes, patterns, and motifs that are developed, and then the later movies look back on those, and they replay them, and they engage with them, and sometimes they repeat them exactly as they originally appeared, or sometimes they tweak them just a little to kind of get you to think in a different direction, and so we don't do this with the scriptures as often as we should, but we have trained ourselves to do so, and we did so unintentionally. It's not like you you start watching a movie and you're like, well, I got to let, really got to pay attention to the story that's being told. You just, that's the point. You're letting the story be told and you're letting it inform you. Okay, 
I'm going to walk us through an exercise which will demonstrate this with modern movies. And I've done this once or twice before. I think it's been a few years. Um, but I, I was talking with Pastor Sam yesterday. I think I may do it like every two years because it's that important. It's that important that you're reminded of this as you read scriptures because scriptures are doing this all the time. So here's the exercise. <clears throat> going to walk through some Star Wars for a moment. Uh, and some of you might remember this or something similar to this. But in the original Star Wars, Episode Four, A New Hope, uh, it was the first one that came out, but if you're into Star Wars, you know technically it's Episode Four. I got it, but it's the first one that came out. Some of you were there. Some of you were in the theaters. Some of you might have brought your kids to the theaters to see this. There's all kinds of different people here. Uh, and you might remember that at the beginning of this, in the opening scenes, there's the bad guys and the bad guys are about to take over the ship of the good guys. And in that scene, Princess Leia takes secret information, and she puts it into a droid, R2-D2. So the bad guys are coming. They're about to take over. Wait a second. We have secret information that's going to help us win the day. Let's put the secret information in this droid. And then the droid begins this daring mission to escape. And the droid does escape, and he finds himself on a desert planet. And there the droid with the secret information on the desert planet is freed or saved by Luke Skywalker, who's the introduction of our hero character. Uh, Luke Skywalker, you may not know that he's going to be the hero. Nevertheless, his character is introduced as the guy who saves the droid with the secret information who's escaping the bad guys on the desert planet. After this, the droid has to find the secret hidden Jedi where he will display the secret information that will help them win the day. Okay. Now, all of these details are important. Even the color that R2-D2, this droid, is projecting, like it may, might not be a big deal to you, but th that blue is important because it's going to be replayed. It's going to be tweaked with. It's going to be engaged with. So, summary. Droid, secret information, escapes, goes to desert planet, is saved by the hero character, and ultimately projects part of the secret message to the person that needs to see it. And it's this R2-D2 blue is what we'll call it. Okay, new movies. Not as good. Um, <clears throat> new movies. Uh, what, what happens, though? The bad guys are coming, and they're coming to get to the good guys, and there's a little robot who's given secret information, and the little robot must escape with the secret information. Now, where does he run to? He escapes to this desert planet where the robot with secret information is saved by our new hero. And at this point, if you're connecting the dots, you know that this girl, Ray, is the new Luke Skywalker. She's functioning as new Luke Skywalker. Now, if you never watched the previous Star Wars, you not, might not be making those connections. But if, if you remember watching this movie, if you did, and you were a fan of the original trilogy, like, no one needs to tell you. Hey, kids, this is Ray. She's our new Luke Skywalker. You just knew it. The story told you by the themes, patterns, and motifs. It was revealing that meaning to you. So the droid who escapes the secret information is rescued by the new Luke Skywalker ultimately has to give the information to the people that need to hear it. And he does. The little droid projects in R2-D2 blue the secret information. And just in case it wasn't crystal clear, guess who's there? The original one. And it's like both the movies are coming together doing the same thing because they couldn't think of anything new to tell. Um, now, 
Now, you could do this in a way that's telegraphed, and that's what I'm making fun of, but movies are always doing this. They're constantly doing it. This is what stories do. Themes and patterns are established, and you're referring back to them. And sometimes, like in this case, they're doing it through the development of the structure of a plot. Escape, droid, secret information, new character, blah, blah, and it goes forward. But you could do this stuff with a single shot. So in this single shot, you're, as you see Ray on the left, you are reminded of Luke Skywalker looking out in the desert and saying, like, there's nothing for me here. I must start my big adventure type of thing. In the original Empire Strikes Back, probably the, the greatest of the Star Wars movies, uh, there's these guys, and they're fighting on a snow planet, right? Some of you might remember. And then... In the newest trilogy, the second movie, which corresponds to The Empire Strikes Back, they're back, but they're not walking on s- snow, it's salt. But the visual establishes the meaning, right? Your brain, through their storytelling, is meant to go back to Empire. It's supposed to make you think about that. And sometimes it's just a split second. Old Ben Kenobi, Obi-Wan Kenobi, the, the hidden Jedi master, reveals himself. Likewise, Luke, who in the last trilogy is the new Obi-Wan Kenobi, establishes that he's the hidden Jedi now revealed with the cloak. So sometimes it's the plot structure and sometimes it's something quick as a scene. Nevertheless, it is crystal clear. Ray is the new Luke Skywalker. And they've given you enough hit, hit images to reveal that sort of hidden meaning. Okay. The scriptures do this all of the time. And they do it in brilliant ways, fascinating ways, complex ways, simple ways. Exodus chapter 24 says this, the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone and with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua and Moses went up into the mountain of God. So an image is being developed of Moses going up to the mountain to receive the law of God. Now this image though is already playing off other images and patterns and themes. So We're only in the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible, but there's already a pattern that says when someone goes up the mountain, it's important, very important. When you're reading your Bible, because we're not trained to think like this, we just could kind of go, oh, and then Abraham went up this mountain or so-and-so went up this mountain. But the, the people who are crafting these stories and reading these stories, they know, go up the mountain, this, probably something very significant and important is about to happen. So Moses is living in that world, in those themes and patterns, and he himself goes up the mountain, so you know something significant is going to happen, and indeed it does, because God gives him the law, the commandments. And then Moses comes down from the mountain with these, and he comes down from the mountain with new teaching, with new law and authority. And then the law itself also has themes and patterns and motifs. So, for example, um, in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses kind of gives the law all over again, reminds people of it. It's called the second law. Listen up, pay attention. And at the end of it, he reminds them of what will occur if they obey or disobey the law. If you obey, if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, The Lord God will set you high above all the nations of the earth and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you. That's powerful words, right? It's like the blessings are so good, they're gonna overtake you. 
Like, I, I want to be overtaken by, ble- like, blessings. That's awesome. The blessings are going to be so awesome. and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. And then, blessed shall you be in the city. Blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of the room and the fruit of the ground and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket. Blessed shall be when you come. And it just goes on. I just cut it off because it's good. Bless, 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 if you obey. But there's an inverse of that, the antithesis of that. The opposite is if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city. Cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket. And it goes on. Curse, 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 and even more than what I wrote. And so, the man with authority comes down the mountain. You meet with God on the mountain. And the man with authority from the mountain comes and he gives God's law. And God's law is structured off of blessings and curses. And everyone would know this, that these images are powerful and they would be in the people's minds. Now, flash forward to the time of Jesus and where we were at several weeks ago when we, start the, when we started the Sermon on the Mount. How does the Sermon on the Mount begin? Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Now, as modern people, we're just completely tempted to go, Jesus went up on a mountain, he sat down. If you're saturated in the biblical narrative, you know going up the mountain is important. Not all the time, but most of the time, something significant is going to happen. And it's important that he sits down. Because in our world, if you want to say something important or say something with authority, you go up to a center of a room or stage, and you stand up, and you make a presentation. In Jesus' day, you sit. Why? Because sitting down is the posture of the king on his throne. Sitting down is the posture of the teacher teaching those underneath him. It's a position of authority. It's a kingly teacher-like position. So Jesus goes up the mountain, he, 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 he sits, and then he says things like, you have heard it said, but I tell you. You know it says, thou shalt not do this, but I tell you this. What's he doing? He's giving new command, new ethic, new law. He goes up the mountain and is giving new law. And he's doing so with authority. How do we know he's doing it with authority? Because remember several weeks ago, the crowds are saying, this guy teaches with an authority that's different than all the other teachers. And then he begins the Sermon on the Mount by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger. And it goes on, blessed, blessed, blessed. And what's fascinating at this point is when Moses gives the law, there is blessing, and there's curses. But in Mark's recording of this Sermon on the Mount, I mean, Matthew's recording of it, Matthew just focuses in on this one component. Blessed, blessed, blessed. Now, at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, he establishes, go back to September if you were here and you remember, Matthew establishes that Jesus is the true son of David. And just like he's establishing Jesus as the true son of David, now Matthew is presenting Jesus as a new Moses figure. Just as Ray is the new Luke Skywalker, Jesus is being presented as this new Moses figure. And we should expect that because there's this verse way back in the law that talks about one who will come after Moses. God is going to raise up a prophet like Moses after him. 
who's going to teach God's law. And some people think that that's Joshua, but there's other people who say, Joshua kind of doesn't fit this description as well. So they're still looking forward to like a son of David, a new Moses, a new prophet. And so there's this anticipation. And so Matthew is telling his story to let you know there's a dude who comes up a mountain and gives new law and he speaks with authority. There's, there's a girl in the desert who saves a droid. Like, and, and it draws all these thoughts and images to your mind and you should be asking yourself, like, is this, is this the new Moses? And this is what Matthew brings our attention to next. When he came down from the mountain, immediately what happens? Behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. So he comes down the mountain and what happens? The crowds gather and they all want miracles. Now, do you think that's because, wow, that was a great sermon? Or they're sort of all sensing there's something more going on here. There's something more to this man. So Matthew, Matthew is asking you a question. Who is this guy? Yes, he probably is a, a new Moses type figure, but is he more? And if he is more than just a new Moses figure, to what degree, to what extent? And he begins to, to work with that question as he tells you these three miracle stories. And at first, Jesus is approached by someone with leprosy. He's a Jewish man. And what does Jesus do? He draws near to him, reaches out, touches him, and he heals the leprosy. That would have made Jesus technically ceremonially unclean, but the unclean nature of the condition just is banished. It vanishes. And so there's a Jewish man who's healed in closeness from leprosy. And then immediately after, a centurion, a Gentile, approaches Jesus who has a servant who is suffering with some form of paralysis. He's presented to Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He heals the centurion's servant from a distance. Now, this gets to the point of story because we're often kind of inclined to say, wow, two great miracles, awesome. But there's a greater story being told. And if you, if you look at this, you begin to see symbolic significance developing. Right? There, there's some symbolic significance in these miracles. They're not just any old miracles. First, you have a Jewish man who has leprosy, is ritually unclean. Then you have a Gentile, someone who's not Jewish. The, lep the one with leprosy is healed with the touch, and the, the centurion's servant is healed from a distance. So you have Jew and Gentile being healed, one with closeness and one with distance which brings us to the third miracle. And they're all set right in a row, fast, right next to each other. There's a woman with a fever. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. And he touched her hand and the fever left her. And she rose and began to serve him. That evening, and they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons. And he cast out the spirits with the word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Okay. So there's this woman, Peter's mother-in-law, and she has a fever. And so what's important for us is that today when we use the word fever, it is a symptom of a condition. 
Like you have something and it's manifesting in this symptom of a fever and we need to treat the root cause. At the time of Jesus, the fever was the actual condition and that usually referred to one of three diseases and suffice to say they're all really bad and probably will kill you. So this woman is suffering with something really bad and it's a life and death situation. And Jesus, once again, draws close. He touches her and he heals her. Now, at this time, there was traditions that said a man shouldn't touch a woman like this in public, that it's not his wife. And certainly that would have been presupposed for a well-respected rabbi not to do. But he does it. And another layer of symbolic significance is added. Do you see it? Leper, leprosy, unclean, Jewish guy, healed, servant of the centurion, Gentile, suffering with paralysis from a distance, healed. Now, a woman with a fever, healed. In three miracles slammed right next to each other, you have Jesus healing both Jew and Gentile, male and female, from a distance and with closeness. And you're seeing the outer reaches and extent of the power of this person. You're seeing him reach to the ends of the earth just in three quick miracles. It's very important symbolic significance. And this is all taking place right after Matthew wanted you to have an image in your mind. Jesus is the one on top of the mountain who has authority to give the law. That's very important. All this stuff is laid out. So then that question that we were originally wrestling with now becomes even more profound. Okay, I think Jesus is a new Moses. But again, is he more than that? And to what degree and to what extent? The question you should be asking is, who is this man? Who is he? What's his actual identity? Now, what happens in in the beautiful storytelling of Matthew is we're going to get two quick encounters with two different types of individuals. It's going to be fast, rapid, like rapid fast. It's going to be like three verses each. And they are going to approach Jesus, and they want to be on his team. But to what degree will they be on his team? is, is what, the, what they're going to wrestle with. And part of, I believe, kind of that wrestling is based upon, like, what authority are they giving this Jesus? Wh- where does he rank? Like, who actually is he? Is kind of like a good teacher, good prophet, like a new Moses, or something more? It goes on. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nest, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. A scribe is someone that was trained in the Old Testament and trained in its interpretation. Oftentimes, scribes, Pharisees, and Sadducees, they come to Jesus with questions, but they actually have some like wicked motivation underneath. This is presented just as, as like, There's no ill motivation. This is a guy who is sort of following Jesus already and he wants to follow him. He wants to become a disciple. And Jesus says to him, look, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests. The son of man, I don't have any place to lay my head. Now, in one one sense, this is pretty straightforward. Jesus is saying, I'm an itinerant preacher. I'm going around northern Galilee. Soon I'm going to be going over all of Israel, uh, preaching the kingdom of God. 
So know that it's not going to be easy. We're going to go from place to place, and we're sort of going to be um, without a permanent home. We won't have permanency of dwelling. And that's certainly true, but I think there's another layer to it that deals with this idea that a well-respected rabbi teacher at this time um, would have clout, and his followers would have clout by proximity. Um, you would start as maybe a school, but Jesus, Jesus isn't like positioned in a synagogue. He doesn't start like a school of his, of his teaching. He doesn't try to acquire wealth or position or prestige. The religious establishment and their leaders had that, but the religious kind of establishment and elite of the day, they didn't look kindly upon Jesus. So Jesus is also saying, look, if you come follow me, we go from place to place. You, you don't get clout by that. You don't increase your reputation by that. You won't be able to, to tell your cousin, well, you know, I'm a disciple of Rabbi Jesus Ben Joseph, and they all applaud. Like maybe in the early days, there was some, there was some prestige with it, but certainly you know how the story goes. Like the establishment of the religious community turns against Jesus. It doesn't give you clout. If you're going to follow me, you got to go wherever I go, and it ain't going to be easy. You have no permanency of dwelling. You just have to follow me. Which is crazy if you think about it, because there's this guy that says, I want to follow you. And Jesus is like, hold on. It's like, let's slow down. He doesn't say, okay, I got one on the line, reel him in. No, slow down, count the cost. And then immediately we're presented with another guy. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me go f- first go and bury my father. Let me go bury my dead dad. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. It's harsh, huh? It's very harsh. Now, if you're honest with yourself, When you hear that, you probably are thinking, Jesus is kind of messed up right here. Like, right? Like, remove, like, well, no, I would never say anything. At first, you're just going, this is messed up. This dad, this guy's dad just died, and Jesus, like, doesn't matter, come follow me. It's heavy. Now, there's a few ways to look at this. I'm going to show you them because some of these ways of looking at it may make this not appear as harsh or like rude. Uh, But then what I want to do is come back around and show you that no matter what option you think is actually taking place, it's still just as harsh. It's still going to end bad. Uh, But there's a reason and a purpose to go through the exercise. Okay. So one thing that possibly could be occurring is uh, many Jews at this time in the first century buried their dead twice. There was two burials that would take place. And this was really common in Jerusalem. People were doing it all throughout Israel. It's really popular in Jerusalem uh, and a little bit where Jesus is at in northern Galilee, but it's certainly a strong possibility. So what would happen is upon someone's death, you would bury them uh, and then you would essentially let the flesh decay and come back a year later, sometimes two or three years later, and you would collect the bones and put them in a bone box and then you would bury, you wouldn't bury the bone box, you'd put the bone box in a, in a special sacred place. 
And so there's the first burial that takes place immediately, and that's where you set out the body and allow certain decomposition to occur. Then you would come back a year, two, three years later, collect the bones and put them in a box. That's the second burial. So it's possible that this guy is saying, like, because it's, it's unlikely that his dad just died and he's out there kind of just chatting with Jesus. He would be in a stage of mourning. So it's possible that this guy is saying, oh man, I'd love to follow you, but I'm going to have to go bury my dad in a year and a half. And Jesus is saying, that's not how this works. The kingdom of God is, is pronounced today. Let's go. That's one possibility. The other possibility is that that phrase, bury my father, is an idiomatic phrase. And there's a little evidence to support this as well. And how the phrase would work is something along the lines of, I am in charge of caring for my father until he dies. In other words, until I bury my father, I am to care for, to care for him. And this was a, a very important thing. When your parents got to an age that they couldn't care for themselves, the fifth commandment kicked in and said, the way you honor your mother and father is you take care of them. We've gone over this before, so I won't spend much time here, but um, the fifth commandment is primarily to older children. We use it to tell like little kids to behave. Like that was presupposed in the ancient world, like the four-year-old doesn't get a say in it type of thing. What it was, and we, if you look at the intertestamental Jewish literature, it becomes clear. The fifth commandment was primarily used to address adult children in how they respected, honored, and cared for their parents. So, this man may be saying, I'd love to come follow you, but I'm actually caring for my father. And until I bury him, I have that, that duty and that obligation. So that may be a possibility because that means that may be a year off. That could be 15 years away. And Jesus could be kind of cutting through and just being like, come on, man. This is, this is a lame excuse. I see, I see your dad's he's playing basketball over there, man. He's, he's, in great, he's in better shape than you, man. It's going to be 10 years before this guy goes. And so he could be kind of calling out, no, no, it's today. Some people say, that Jesus is saying, let the spiritually dead bury the spiritually dead, but if you want life, come follow me. So it's the third option. The fourth option is just the original harsh one, the way we originally saw it. The guy's dad just died, and Jesus like, doesn't matter, let's go. Okay. I'd like you to know the weight and gravity that a first century Jewish man would feel about burying a relative, especially his father. To bury one's parents or family members was a sacred duty that was of utmost importance. So much so that in Leviticus, priests, priests who are commanded to remain clean, you can't do anything, you can't touch the end, like, it's very important, they're actually given allowance to become unclean to bury a relative or their parents. So it's like, uh, yeah, I know in the Torah we have these rules in place, but the proper burying and honoring of your family members is of greater importance, so you're allowed to break the rule for this instance. In the Mishnah, which is a Jewish document compiled in 200 AD, it says that one is free from reciting the Shema in order to bury a family member. Now, the Shema is Deuteronomy 6.4, Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one. It was recited typically three times a day by the Jewish people, and so it's not saying that reciting the Shema isn't important. What they're saying is that making sure your parents get a pauper burial is more urgent than these other 
religious practices, prayers that you have. In the Talmud, in 500 AD, it was a document compiled, it's tons of documents compiled in 500 AD. Um, it says that you are actually free from certain laws in the Torah in order to properly bury a mother or father. And so you can see that in the Jewish world at this time, this was such an important thing that people are saying, hey, stop this, stop that. This is of sacred duty and importance. And what's even more crazy is that we know Jesus honors the fifth commandment. Jesus cares about honoring your mother and father. Jesus is honoring and caring for his mother as he's dying on the cross. So it's not as if Jesus like, get rid of the fifth commandment. So it's incredibly, it, it, this, is, this is shocking. When, if you were reading this in the first century, you're going, who does this guy think he is? Like, let, this guy's dad died, and he says, let him, let the dead bury the dead? So in one sense, some of those interpretations soften the blow. I happen to think that this man is caring for his father, and he's, he's, he's basically saying, wait till my dad passes, and then I'll become a disciple. So in one sense, there's some ways to ease the harshness of it, but in another sense, there's not. Because at the end of the day, Jesus is saying, whatever one of these things are true, it is more important to follow me than it is to do X, Y, Z. Like, I am of more value than whatever is occurring here. In other words, I must be placed higher in your life than your dad, than family members which in that context is by way of extension saying, I must be given more value and authority in your life than any other earthly person or institution. Jesus is essentially saying, I must sit at the top of the hierarchy of the values of your life. So picture a triangle when I say the word hierarchy. The hierarchy is like a triangle and it's a system by which you place all the things that you value in life. So it's not saying you can't value anything but Jesus. It is saying Jesus has to sit at the top of the hierarchy. He has to be that which is most valuable and everything else is ordered underneath that. Everything in their proper place. Which gets us back to like the original issue, right? Like, okay, yes, this guy's a new Moses, but is he something more? Jesus is saying, whatever sacred duty you have to your father the sacred duty to follow me is of greater importance. That is not to say the fifth commandment doesn't matter any of that stuff, but it is to say, and let me make it abundantly clear, that Jesus is demanding his proper place at the top of the mountain, on the top of the triangle, and everything else must be ordered underneath him. Your first and foremost allegiance and commitment is to Jesus. What type of man could demand that of you? And that's the question Matthew is continuing to roll out before us. Now, the good news is, if you place Jesus at the top, he's at the top of the hierarchy, he's at the top of the mountain, um, that actually is good for all of the other things in your hierarchy of values. So you will love better, hold to your commitments more, and be more responsible over things that aren't as valuable, but when they're put in their proper order under Jesus. Like, you'll be better at loving those things. You'll be better at being responsible. Let me give you an example. Let's say, um, 
Let's say you're young and in love and you're dating this wonderful person and everything's fantastic and you're both Christians and, you, you know, you've been dating for two, two months, but you, you know you're going to get married and you love each other. And you make a commitment that, hey, we're both Christians. We want to honor God with our relationship. Um, so we're going to make a commitment to each other and to God that we are going to save ourselves to marriage. We're not going to engage in premarital sex. Okay. If God is at the top of your hierarchy, he is that which is most important, you will be more likely to maintain those commitments to each other. However, if you allow that relationship to become God, essentially that relationship becomes the, the pinnacle of the hierarchy. They become, that relationship functionally becomes God, that which is most important. With God outside, you are more likely to break those sacred commitments because you've removed God from his proper place. It's just, gonna, it's just the, the, the way it's going to be. And so properly understood, love of God and placing him at top equips you and enables you to honor and value everything else in the hierarchy, but you'll do so in their proper order, and you will do better. But if you mess up that order, things go terribly wrong. So for example, you can sometimes, you can put something good, like loving your children, at the top of the hierarchy of values, and I go, well, loving my kids is a good thing, so that's going to be what's most important in my life. But if you replace God with your children, you will damage your children. And trust me, there's a good chance you will ruin your relationship with your children. Why? Because your kids cannot bear the weight and responsibility of becoming your functional God. Children cannot bear the weight of being your functional God. You will smother them, you will control them, and you will not be the mom or the dad that you envisioned yourself to be and you will damage them, and there's a good chance your relationship with them may fall apart because kids can't bear that weight. And actually, nothing earthly can bear the weight of that. So fill in marriage, dating relationship, job, hobby, whatever it may be, it can't bear the weight of being your God. And so everything in their proper order with Christ on top of the mountain. So if he says, come follow me, you don't say, you know, I have some other responsibilities. I got some things I'm working on. You know, Lord, I started this, it's a thousand piece puzzle. I've been going at it for two weeks. I'm almost done, let me finish it. Now you also trust that God is good and whatever responsibility he gave you, he is not going to go against the healthy responsibilities he gave you. So it's not like you could just be reckless with your other things. Well, I just love God most so nothing else matters. Part of your love and obedience to God is by caring for the things that he gave you responsibility over. Everything in their right place under the banner of Christ with him at the top. Now, uh, this is one of the major problems with the modern world as it abandons the idea of God more and more, is that we no longer have an organizing principle to orient ourselves. And so if you're a believer, if you're a Christian, Christ is the center point and you orient your entire life around him. And so this is most valuable, and what I believe or do about this is based upon this. What I do and think about this is based upon Christ. And so all of those things are orbiting around the center point. It's the organizing principle. But when you remove God from that, anything fills its place. And so people will organize their life around something 
that's not truly transcendent or has the capability of doing what God can do. And so it, it's, it's a very, it's a horrible way to live. You become fragmented and you don't even know how to approach reality because you're basing your decision upon this. This is your organizing principle, but then you know what? I kind of grow tired of it. It's not that big deal. So it gets replaced with something else. And then your whole life is shifting and your personality and your identity and what you do and what you believe about, the, it's just chaos nonstop. It's like trying to navigate without a compass. And people become incredibly fickle morally when they don't have that center point. When things are difficult, will you continue to do right if there is not something that sits atop of the hierarchy? Will you do what's right when it costs you something? No, you'll back, you'll back down. Let's replace it with something else. You get married and you're six months into the marriage, it's like, you know, this isn't bad. But it's not everything I thought it would be. It's not as fulfilling as I wanted it to be, man. I think I'm going to get a new spouse. <laughs> Where if you said, no, I made a commitment to God, I'm going to do everything I can and humanly possible to make this work because my center point is not my marriage, but God. And so it's a glue that binds the rest of these things together. Now, there's another thing before, before we, we, we close. It's, it's really, this, is, this one is fascinating. I, I, we touched on it lightly just a moment ago. Okay. These two people come to Jesus, right? And they're like, we want to follow you. And Jesus essentially is like, I don't think you do. I don't think you do. Let me prove it to you. Let the dead bury their dead. Or remember, there's a rich young ruler in the Gospels. Or what, teacher, sell everything you have, give it to the poor. Mm, okay, I don't, I, you know. Because is this guy just a wise teacher? Is he just a new Moses or is he something more? How much authority does he actually have over your life? Because if you're at the top with complete authority, if it's on the top of the mountain, when he says something, you don't like get to bargain. And so Jesus goes, ah, I don't think you want to follow me. Birds have nests, foxes have dens. Oh, let the dead bury their dead. And so this is sort of the opposite of, of the trap that we often fall into. And I've fallen into it. Maybe you haven't, but some of you will know what I'm talking about. Let's say there's someone we really, they're a good friend, we love them, we want them to become Christian. And so we're like, come on, you gotta become a Christian. It, it's so awesome. Uh, there's heaven and eternity, forgiveness of sin and reconciliation, which all of those things are true, by the way. But we just load it with all the good stuff. There is never a mention of Calvary, Gethsemane, Golgotha, or the cross. It's all the good stuff, but no counting of the cost. Make it as easy as possible. Come on, come on. It's like, here's the line of becoming a Christian. It's like, yeah, yeah, come on. You're getting close. It's awesome. It's so good. Church is cool. They sing cool songs. There's some, some jokes sometimes. Sometimes they're funny, sometimes not, but it's, it's really good. Come on, just a little closer. Close your eyes. Close your eyes. Sit. You don't even have to say this out loud. You can say it in your heart. Close your eyes. You don't have to even talk out loud. Just say it in your heart. And we want to make it as easy. Just get them across this line. And Jesus is like, I'm not sure you want to follow me. Have you counted the cost? Do you know about Gethsemane, Golgotha? Do you know about carrying your cross daily? Count it before you cross that line. 
And oftentimes we employ like a parents with vegetable tactics. Eat, come on, baby, eat your beets. They're good. They're really good for you. They're really good for you. And it's like, yeah, but, you know, most of the time they don't taste very good. And you're just like, you're just trying to get them across the line. Come on, come on. Gethsemane, Golgotha, the cross. Jesus says, count it. And so the lesson for us is, is we should count the cost and we should be up front. Jesus does give heaven eternity forgiveness, but there's also a cost. Now, the wonderful part about that is that Jesus gives you both. He doesn't just give you all the good stuff. He lets you know there's, there's, there might be suffering involved. You better count the cost. But he never once ever flinches in saying you should still cross the line. Why? Because he, he says, I'm worth it. I'm worth it. No, let me give you everything you get, and let me tell you about the cost. We still come. I'm worth it. And whatever earthly things you might lose, no matter how painful those earthly losses might be, I'm still worth it. You've lost this much, you'll be given this much. Come on, it's still worth it. And he doesn't hesitate or flinch. I'm worth it. I'm worth it. And so as believers... We have already ought to have counted the cost, but on a daily basis, we should remind ourselves. There's a lot of good things, but here on this side of eternity, there's a cost, and I'm willing to pay it because he's worth it. And ultimately, we are just called to follow him. For the man that Jesus told birds have nest, there was an issue of permanency of dwelling. Like he didn't, he, he, he wasn't on board because you're going to be moving from place to place. You're not going to have stability. Now, we may not be called to becoming itinerant preachers moving from place to place. Nevertheless, the challenge is the same. Like, you do not get permanency of safety, security, and comfort if you're going to be a Christian. Yes, there's comfort, and less there's peace, but oftentimes there's challenge and suffering. And Jesus, in the midst of all of that, says, no, follow me. Follow me. And I'm telling you, if we don't learn to do that, we're going to go insane. Because if you haven't noticed, like, just as the one man was confronted with moving from place to place, like, in the modern world, it kind of feels like the world is just moving and changing nonstop. And we like structure and stability, and we want to be in control. We want everything to go our way, and the way we've been plotting for, like, 10 years, this is what our life's going to be like. And this has become particularly acute like in the last two years. It's like you wake up and it's like, what is going on in the world? It's like one thing after another. It's almost comical now. It's like one thing after another. And so you're going to lose your mind unless you have a compass. And your compass with Jesus, it's actually weird because you just, you just follow him. <laughs> it's like sometimes he's going to lead you this way, sometimes he's going to lead this but you just keep your eyes on him. And so the way you could challenge yourself today is ask yourself, if Jesus were to walk into this room today and say, follow me, let's go, would you say, Lord, of course I want to follow you, but first let me and give the excuses? Or would you say, I'm terrified? I don't even think I want to follow you at this point. I got my head in a lot of other places. But you're the top of the mountain. You're it. You're the pinnacle of the peak. You're at the top. 
You have all authority. It's go time. And that's a very difficult thing to wrestle with. And so as we close, I want to challenge us to think about kind of that mountain, that hierarchy of values, that triangle. Is Christ at the top of it? Or are there other things? Or maybe he's at the top, but you can see in your life, if you look ahead, there are things warring and vying for the attention. Like they're, they're sneaking in to try to dethrone Christ in your life. And you think now critically about it because when things get tough, when things get rough, you have to, you have, to have Christ at top. When your life falls apart, when you lose a loved one, when you don't even know how you're going to pay your rent, when life gets you that hard, you got one thing to cling to in those moments, and it's not earthly, fleeting, or fading things of this material world. It's Christ. And he gives you comfort and peace, but you pledge to him loyalty and allegiance. And so examine your hearts as we enter into communion. Examine your hearts and your minds. Where... What are the things you value? Are the things vying and warring for their proper place in your life? Let's stand as we take communion. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he takes bread. He says, this is my body broken for you. You take this and remember. And so today, Lord, we remember you are not just king of kings and lord of lords, You are not just the pinnacle of the mountain, but you are also the one who came down to heaven, came down from heaven to earth to die the wretched death on the cross to draw us in. And so we want to lift your name high and remember your work. Likewise, Jesus takes a cup and he says, this is the blood of the new covenant. And as we take this, Lord, we pledge our allegiance to proclaim your death, your resurrection, until you return. And so, Father, as we close in this time, we want to center ourselves on your Son, that Jesus would be center in our hearts, centered in this place, that we would value him above all things, and in doing so, rightly order our lives with him as the centerpiece. Your son is king. We want to be loyal. So through the work and power of your spirit, creating us faithfulness and loyalty. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.